Hello, I'm Kate Jabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, what is the UK's military plan for space? It's a domain that is not subject yet to sort of rules and regulations like the other domains are. And therefore, we need to be really careful about some of the slightly reckless and irresponsible behaviour that's been going on in space over the last several years. How should NATO react to reports of increased Russian military activity close to the border with Ukraine? We ask a former NATO ambassador. And the Red Arrows, a Lancaster and a Vulcan take flight in a stained glass window. The church marking its history with RAF Scampton. This church used to be full of RAF officers from RAF Scampton. It was their church and they, uh, they used to come here to remember their comrades. But first, there's no doubt that space as a domain has become fundamental to military operations. UK Space Command was officially formed last week, a joint command staffed from the Navy, the Army, the Air Force and the Civil Service. The Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, told SITREP that space is very much one of the modern operational domains. I mean, space at the moment provides us with our means of global positioning. It provides us with a huge amount of our communications capability. Uh, and in future, I think it will provide a huge amount of our intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance capability. And indeed, some of that will happen in space, perhaps rather than in the air domain. So the answer is it's, it's really important. What also is important, though, I think, is that we recognise that it's a domain that is not uh, subject yet to sort of rules and regulations like the other domains are. And therefore, we need to be really careful about some of the slightly reckless and irresponsible behaviour that's been going on in space over the last <coughs> several years. And what is not needed, frankly, is for us to end up with some of these capabilities being threatened in space. So it's timely that we think about it as an operational domain. It's timely that we invest in making sure that we can operate in space. Uh, but it is also timely to reflect on the extent to which the UK actually, as the Prime Minister announced, is really quite good in space in terms of our science and technology sector. And actually, there's much to be said for uh, investing in something that is good for British industry and actually will be good for the prosperity of our country. Well, we're joined now by Alexandra Stickings, Research Fellow, Space Policy and Security at the Defence Think Tank RUSI, and our regular guest, Professor Michael Clark, former director of RUSI. Hello to both of you. Uh, Alexandra, what do you think are the key priorities for this new UK Space Command then? There are a few different priorities, and I think the first one is figuring out exactly what we need in space. What are the requirements um, specifically for the UK military? And that's not necessarily a space question. That's a question for uh, the users. So it's about communications, about position navigation and timing. So once we figure out what we need in order for our operations to continue and what we get from our allies and where do we rely on our allies? Where can our capabilities fit within those allied structures? The purpose of Space Command then is to... Uh, assist with the procurement, uh, the launch, and then the operation uh, of those assets once they're in orbit. And then when we have uh, our assets in orbit, it's about the protection of those assets from the hazards and threats um, that we find in the space environment. Michael, you heard General Carter there say space was an operational domain. This is something NATO has recently recognised as well. Yes. Uh, I mean, NATO created a space policy in 2019, recognising uh, the five domains of warfare. So, you know, air, land, sea, space and cyber. So they recognise that, that you have to be able to compete and possibly fight in space along with the other domains. 
And then uh, last year, October 2020, they set up at Rammstein in the um, Allied Air Command headquarters, NATO's own space centre. But it's not an operational HQ. It is a, it's very much a, a clearinghouse of information and it's a, a place where um, good practice and, and uh, intelligence material can be shared. So NATO has recognised this. But the fact is, as Alexander was saying, that the, it's, the, it's individual members of NATO, some of them, not many, but some of them, who have their own space capabilities. And that will be the way NATO will go into space with one or two or three of its members with the NATO alliance, as it were, trying to share the information as far as possible. Alexandra, you talked about some of the priorities. What do you think are the major decisions likely to be taken this year that will shape the future of the UK's military space capabilities? Uh, I think the first one is around the area of what's known as space domain awareness, uh, and that is uh, essentially visualising and understanding what is happening in space. We cannot operate in space unless we know what's going on in orbit. That's tracking functional satellites, uh, detecting and tracking the thousands of pieces of debris and old satellites uh, that are up there that, that could cause problems. And also understanding the intentions of other actors in space, both states and commercial actors. And particularly when we, when we look at what are known as counter space capabilities, those capabilities that could threaten our assets. Um, space domain awareness isn't an activity that can be done uh, by one actor on their own. There's a huge amount of cooperation that's required internationally and with the commercial sector. So I think how uh, Space Command goes forward in terms of those partnerships will be very important. And Alexandra, you heard General Carter talk about the lack of rules and irresponsible behaviour that's been going on for years, he says. What are the threats? The, the threats that are coming from other states are these counter space capabilities. The, there's a whole range of them, a spectrum uh, from you know cyber attacks against space assets and ground stations. Uh, we're seeing potentially the development of lasers that can dazzle optical sensors uh, all the way through to kinetic attacks such as anti-satellite missiles, which will which will uh, destroy a satellite in orbit. But yes, there are no uh, regulations, there are no treaties uh, on these beyond the Outer Space Treaty, uh, which is over 50 years old and, and only really deals with uh, weapons of mass destruction in space. So there's a lot of uh, movement in the international community through the United Nations to try to develop norms of responsible behaviour uh, that, that space actors can abide by, to try and create a bit more... Uh, not necessarily regulation, but just some rules of the ro road um, on how to ensure the sustainability of orbit. And Michael, who will be the international partners we'll collaborate with and how will we collaborate with them in space? Well, we'll want to collaborate with other key countries that are partners around the world. I mean, like Japan and South Korea, India. I mean, there are you know, 10 or 20 countries who have significant space policies and some of those are, are going to be our allies. Britain will have to, as we're partner with some big commercial organisations as well as other governments to try to create some sort of regulatory rules of the road for low earth orbit because there are none at the moment and governments quite honestly are failing to get to grips with this so if Britain wants to stay on the front foot in developing space as a, a part of the global Britain concept it's really got to work with a big range of partners and think about getting some sensible regulations sorted out. And Alexandra how different do you think the UK's military space capabilities will be in 2030? I can't see a huge change um, I think you know it's Sometimes you, you see the, the narratives that, that come around um, uh, around space and the military, particularly with, with the US Space Force and you know, talks of space marines and, and you know, the, these gigantic lasers. 
I don't think we're going to see huge fundamental changes. Uh, a lot of it uh, is, is about how we are using these services and how we are understanding our reliance on them and ensuring that the structures we have in place through things like Space Command allow us uh, to be more efficient and more effective in our use of space. We will have more platforms. Uh, we will have better ISR capabilities. Um, but 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 anything more than that, I don't see happening in that in that short term. Alexandra Stickens, thank you very much for your time. Professor Michael Clark, stay with us. The Defence Secretary Ben Wallace chaired a meeting of NATO defence ministers from the United States, Canada, Lithuania and Poland last night to discuss the situation in Ukraine. A statement said all five nations were united in support of Ukraine in the face of increasing Russian military activity. A series of clashes have taken place in eastern Ukraine between troops and Russian-backed separatists. Moscow has not denied reported troop movements, but denies planning any form of military attack. It warned any deployment of NATO troops to Ukraine would mean it would need to take extra measures for its own security. US President Joe Biden's press secretary is Jen Psaki. We remain concerned by the recent escalations of Russian aggression and provocative actions in eastern Ukraine. Well, earlier I spoke to Sir Adam Thompson, who was the UK's ambassador to NATO until 2016. He now leads the think tank, the European Leadership Network. I asked him how concerned NATO will be. Well, NATO will be acutely concerned at the possibility of further Russian intervention in Ukraine and will be monitoring it very closely. That does not necessarily mean particularly vigorous NATO action, however. I recall in 2014, NATO's decision that the European Union and economic measures should be the best response rather than military ones to Russian aggression. On Tuesday, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg tweeted that he had called the Ukrainian president to express serious concern about Russia's activities in and around Ukraine and ongoing ceasefire violations. What kind of difference do you think that kind of uh, contact will make? I think political support for President Zelensky from NATO is very important for him uh, domestically uh, and probably for him personally in a difficult situation. Um, but NATO needs to tread a very careful line here. Uh, it has no particular interest in going as far as President Zelensky has, require, has requested, which is a formal membership action plan for Ukraine, a pathway to NATO membership even clearer than the one it already has. Do you think that pathway to NATO membership is extremely unlikely as things stand? I do. Uh, it is. I mean, even if there were not uh, the problems with Russia, Ukraine has a great distance to travel in terms of uh, civilian authority over the military, in terms of uh, driving out corruption, meeting NATO standards in general before it would be a strong candidate for NATO membership. NATO's treaty, Article 10, uh, requires that a new member contribute to NATO's security, not just NATO contributing to an applicant's security. How much of this do you think can be seen in the context of the new US president? It's very hard to read Russian intentions. Uh, that is, I'm sure, by design in the Kremlin. Uh, but uh, while uh, Ukrainian-Russian uh, dialogue has been stalemated, uh, we had a good period uh, in the latter part of last year with a, a ceasefire that actually took hold. 
uh, and it is now deteriorating, one has to speculate that this is partly about uh, President Putin wanting to show the new US president that he knows how to defend his corner. So what should NATO do? Wait and watch? A little bit more than that. I mean, NATO, ever since the shock of 2014, the illegal annexation of Crimea and Russian intervention in eastern Ukraine, has uh, been stepping up and deepening its partnership with Ukraine, uh, helping it through a uh, comprehensive uh, assistance package agreed at the Warsaw Summit uh, in uh, 2016 uh, with training for uh, Ukrainian troops, greater interoperability uh, with NATO forces, building the democratic controls that NATO would expect of a partner military, for example. And I dare say that will intensify. We've also seen NATO step up its presence in the Black Sea, for example, as a measure of reassurance uh, to the Ukrainians and more uh, maritime collaboration with Ukraine. Uh, all of that may deepen as a result of what is in the end a self-defeating Russian uh, strategy. It's a it's a it's a lose-lose proposition, I think, for Russia's neighborhood, but also for Russia itself to continue to destabilize. De Why do you say it's self-defeating? Because in the end, uh, Russia uh, loses partners. Uh, it uh, diminishes such soft power as it has. Uh, it uses up its own uh, natural resources in pursuit of uh, what is a, an essentially unnecessary defense against uh, the perceived threat from NATO. NATO is not going to be invading Russia anytime soon. Uh, so it's, it's suffered very heavily and paid a very high price for what it has done to Ukraine. So Adam Thompson there. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, a war of words rather than action, do you think? Well, I think there's a, a momentum for action building up because there's quite a lot of uh, Russian troops on the move. I mean, there's a uh, looks like an air mobile brigade has gone or is about to go to Crimea. And there's about twenty to 25,000 troops moving up to the northern and uh, eastern borders of Ukraine. And then there's 3,000 or so uh, armed insurgents in the Donbass region. And then uh, the United States has delivered in the last fortnight at least three shipments, one by ship and two by aircraft, it looks like. Uh, at least three shipments of equipment to Ukraine. It looks like SUVs and maybe some Humvee vehicles. So there's quite a lot of activity and things are building up. Uh, so there's going to be some sort of standoff. Whether it'll become uh, real fighting, we will see. But there's a military standoff which has been created deliberately by Moscow. And the United States is determined to show that it's not going to be completely passive in the face of that. So that's where we are as of this week, I think. And where does this fit into wider Russia relations with the UK and the United States? Well, it's a difficult one because ultimately there's not very much that um, the West can do to defend Ukraine. If the Russians want to, as it were, seize more territory than they have got influence in in the Donbass or even drive through to Mariupol and towards uh, a land bridge, to a, real, a bigger land bridge to Crimea than the one they've already got, uh, then that's not something we can do very much about. But as Adam Thompson was saying, I mean, Russia is on a strategic loser here. I mean, the tactics may all be in Putin's hands. He's a very skilled tactician. He's quite good at doing things that take everybody by surprise. But the strategy is that the more pressure he puts 
on Ukraine, the more Ukraine will lean towards Western Europe, the more it will want to join NATO and the EU, and it won't be allowed to do that, but it'll get closer and closer through association agreements, and the less influence uh, Russia will have. I mean, ultimately, the thing that Putin probably would like to engineer is some sort of counter-revolution in Kiev to bring Ukraine back into a really pro-Moscow stance. But I think he's further away from that now than he was in 2013 when this whole crisis began. Michael, stay with us. A church with a rich military heritage will soon be the home for a new stained glass window to reflect its history with RAF Scampton. The panels contain images of the Red Arrows, a Lancaster and a Vulcan, as well as the aerial view over the base. Kirsty Chambers went to the artist's studio last week to see the window close up. Tucked away in a studio in Loughborough is 380 hand-painted pieces of glass, all combining the rich heritage of RAF Scampton, from the diamond formation of the Red Arrows to the Lancaster bomber and, of course, the Vulcan aircraft. Claire Williamson is the artist. I'm still fairly terrified about somebody picking up on something they haven't quite got right in the aeroplane, and the Lancaster bomber especially because there's so many different variants on Lancaster bombers. They were very specific about which type of Lancaster bomber it had to be, even down to getting the camouflage on it and things like that, trying to get the, that right for the specific plane. It's taken around two years to get to this point, and it all started from a few pictures and sketches. I thought because it was based around RAF Scampton, what would be really good is to use an aerial view so this is my plan, this is my aerial view of RAF Scampton that I used for the design. Today was the first time anyone from the church had seen the panes up close. Joe Bartrop, who's been liaising with Claire, was impressed with the windows so far. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I particularly love the way that the aircraft seem to have a 3D effect, even without the light behind it and the pattern of the red arrows in a perfect diamond nine, I love that as well. When the concept was first thought, thought about, the idea was to, to, to celebrate a hundred years relationship between Scampton Church and RAF Scampton. But because RAF Scampton's closing next year, maybe that idea has sort of expanded and it will be a lasting memory to all these squadrons and personnel that have served there. Just over 50 miles away is the Scampton Church, where the new windows are set to be fitted in the coming months. Reverend Sue Deacon explains where the windows will be fitted. There's a reason that we had, uh, chose this actual window, because it's south-facing. So once the sun comes out, it will shine through and, and really emphasise all the wonderful bright colours of the, uh, of the window. This church used to be full of RAF officers from RAF Scampton. It was their church and they, uh, they used to come here to remember their comrades. And of course the other thing is that we have over 100 RAF war graves in our churchyard. We're very, very, very involved with the RAF here. But since this project began, the church has faced wear and tear on its roof and is now categorised by historic England as being at risk says Matthew Godfrey, the Historic Churches Support Officer for Lincoln. We've got about 60 churches across Lincolnshire on the register. Just things wear out. These are old ancient buildings. The lead gets thinner over, over the period of time. Starts letting in a bit of water, gets into the roof timbers, roof timbers rot, etc, etc. So it's, 
it's nothing we wouldn't expect on a building of that age. But I know they've got a good team. They've got a really good team at Scampton. And I, I know they're on this one already. So I'm not worried about this church at all. Hours upon hours have gone into the painting of these windows. And with just the final touches left, it will soon be on show to forever pay tribute to RAF Scampton, even after it closes next year. Kirsty Chambers reporting there. This is Sitrap. Now, hundreds of people have lost their lives in Myanmar since the military coup there in February, and its ousted leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, has been arrested and charged with an array of offences. Last night, its ambassador in London said he was locked out of his embassy. In March, he had called for the release of Ms Suu Kyi. Well, last week, the chief of the defence staff, General Sir Nick Carter, signed a joint letter from defence chiefs in 12 countries condemning the actions of Myanmar and the UK has announced sanctions against the coup leaders and military-linked companies. Gareth Price is a senior research fellow at the foreign policy think tank Chatham House. He told me earlier that the military had no intention of backing down. I, I don't think it's consolidating its hold on power in the sense that the vast majority of the population don't support it. You know that because they just had a general election and no one voted for the military. So they don't want to back down. They're trying to, as you say, arrest protesters. They're, they've killed 500, maybe more than 500 already. Essentially, both sides are upping the ante, and the prognosis is pretty bleak, I would say. And clearly, China, Myanmar's largest trading partner, is the most important player in the region. But China has opposed sanctions and said it hoped for peace and a democratic transition there. What role is it playing in all of this? I think China's position, you know, in regard to other countries in general, is sort of non-interference. I mean, the Chinese newspaper early on described this the coup as a cabinet reshuffle. While they may be ambivalent about the coup itself, by continuing to engage with, with Myanmar, with its military, selling it arms and so forth, that translates into tacit approval of, of the military takeover. So what do you think will happen in Myanmar over the coming months? I think there's three options. One is that the military backs down, of which there's no sign so far. And I think there comes a tipping point. Um, you know, once you've killed 200 people, and now it's 500 or so, possibly you can back down. But there comes a point, you know, as in Syria, where you've killed so many people that you can't back down. The population at large seems to have shown no signs of wanting to um, back down, despite the abuses inflicted on them. And the civil disobedience campaign would seem to be effective. The economy is grinding to a halt. So either the population backs down or is arrested en masse, or the military backs down. Or the third alternative is, frankly, civil war. That was Gareth Price from Chatham House. With me still is Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, how much is this a potential point of tension with China? Oh, very much so, because this exactly um, encapsulates the problem that the West has with China. Because on the one hand, you know, we, we criticise China rightly over Hong Kong, over Xinjiang and the treatment of the Uyghurs, over its pressure on Taiwan, over its wolf warrior diplomacy, threatening and blackmailing and bullying people around the world. But on the other hand, if we're going to do something about North Korea, if we're going to do something about climate change, and now if we're going to do something about Myanmar, 
then the road leads through Beijing. Only Beijing has got some power to change the fundamental underlying situation. And it, it really is difficult. And, uh, you know, the British government, like other governments, is trying to get this balance between not being pushed around by China, but equally engaging with China where there is a common interest. And, and the problem on Myanmar is that it isn't clear that there really is a common interest here. China will defend uh, the autocratic government. They'll defend General Huang uh, for as long as it takes because they so fear street protests. That's the that's anathema to them. So as long as you've got an autocrat, doesn't matter how, how bloody that autocrat is or how vicious that person is, and he is extremely vicious, they will back him for as long as he is keeping the place in some sort of order. If it deteriorates into outright civil war, then they know they've got a problem and they don't want that. But equally, you know, they'll go a long, long way before they'll really lean on General Lang to to step back, as Gareth Price was saying. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So the situation, I'm sure, will get worse before it gets better. And there's precious little that the outside world can do about it other than make it clear to the Myanmar junta that they that there is no way out of this for them. They are they you know, they will stand condemned by world history for all of this. Uh, Michael, we heard that the Myanmar ambassador to London has been withdrawn. He says he's been locked out. Yes, as indeed almost has the uh, Myanmar ambassador to the United Nations. This is one of the key issues, actually. The, the degree to which Myanmar's ambassadors around the world, all of whom have got a real problem in working out what is the best thing to do, the degree to which they can say, we will not represent this government, and then the degree to which the host government, say in America or the UN or Britain or Germany, then say, well, we will not accept the person that you then send to replace them. And this is one way of, of isolating the military junta by, as we're sticking up for those ambassadors who are prepared to say, I think that the legitimate government of Myanmar is still Aung San Suu Kyi. And if enough of them say that, then I think that there is some pressure that the outside world might be able to bring to bear. Michael Clark, thank you very much for joining us this week. Finally, the family of Captain Sir Tom Moore, who raised nearly £40 million for the NHS, is asking the nation to organise their own fundraising activities to mark what would have been his 101st birthday. Rosie Layden reports. Well, the thought that's been uh, 100, if we did 100 laps of the garden, we might uh, get £1,000. But we seem to be done a bit better than £1,000. Captain Sir Tom Moore speaking with typical Yorkshire understatement almost a year ago. In fact, the Army veteran won international recognition, a knighthood and a number one single as he smashed his original target and raised an eventual £38.9 million for the NHS. His daughter, Hannah Ingram Moore, says the family want to inspire the public in his memory with the Captain Tom 100 initiative. He loved being 100. I mean, he, he loved everything that happened in that year when he was 100. So the purpose of this is to celebrate my father's life, um, to celebrate around his birthday weekend by picking up the 100, creating a challenge around the 100 and raising money for the Captain Tom Foundation or any charity of your choice. And we want to share that lasting legacy of hope that he gave us with everyone. Captain Sir Tom Moore enlisted into the Duke of Wellington's regiment at the start of the Second World War. Commissioned in 1940, he transferred to the Royal Armoured Corps. He rose to the rank of captain, seeing action in India and Burma. He fought for his country by the age of 20. And what that gives you is a powerful 
feeling of what is right and to defend the sovereign country that you're from. He felt so proud to be British and so proud to now to be to be part of and representing this multicultural modern Britain. Of course, there was a phenomenal national, international response to him. What did the response he had from the British Armed Forces mean to him? Oh, I mean, everything. I think um, it, the standout moment for him, and he said it frequently, was meeting the Queen. But the very, very next most amazing thing that happened to him was becoming the honorary colonel of the Harrogate um, Army Foundation College. It's difficult to say how, how delighted and how thrilled I am, and I'm very honoured to get this, this rank, which really is something very outstanding. His association with the Army, um, the Armed Forces, and all that it stands for, um, which is intertwined in that pride of um, Britain, um, it was at the centre of who he was. It meant so much. I think as a as a twenty year old to be thrust into that incredibly dangerous environment, and it was powerful. That emotion he felt towards the armed forces was powerful. It was in everything that he did. The Captain Tom Foundation are encouraging members of the public to take part in this special initiative over the Maybank holiday weekend to coincide with what would have been his one hundred and first birthday on the thirtieth of April. I haven't had anything official, but I've heard um, through the whispering grapevine that there may be some overseas um, army bases ready to pick up the challenge and possibly some um, wonderful Navy on their ships. Um, so we will, I will simply wait and see. The, um, the, the cauntlet has been thrown out as a challenge. We shall wait to see who picks it up first, shall we? That report by Rosie Layton. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot, and all my guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.